For those of you who don't know me, um, I am a freelance drama practitioner. A lot of people say to me, what what even does that mean? Um, And it basically means I like doing lots of different things. Most of those things are to do with drama, but it can be anything from acting to directing to working with young people and children in theatre spaces and making uh, amazing bits of drama. Um, That's my background. That's where I met Mark. Mark and I met at drama school. And um, I was thinking about this chapter um, from a sort of a dramaturge, a dramaturgical point of view, because when we're in... Uh, in drama and we one of the things I specialise in is devising pieces of theatre with young people so they're creating these stories from scratch and um, I help them to look through their ideas and think of what are the significant moments that take place in their stories and those moments are really key when you're creating a piece of drama because um, everything focuses around them they might be symbolic moments or tension moments or emotional moments but they're really really key in telling a story and when I was reading this I just thought this is full this is so rich with really significant moments and and the Bible is amazing for having all these different layers you can read a passage and come back to that passage and spot a whole load of things in there that you didn't spot before. Um, And this is one of those passages. There's just so many different things that I could talk about. It's one of my favorite passages. Um, So bear with me when I try and keep it short and to the point. Um, Just to say that John, who is telling this story, a quick reminder in his his kind of style of, of his gospel writing, he goes for the big picture stuff. He is trying to help us to get our heads around really, really big ideas. Um, And this is a really big idea, and it kind of changes, at this point, changes so much about how we are to worship God. And it's it's a beautiful picture. Um, I've kind of broken this up into five points. Um, The first is really to talk about uh, where this passage is taking place, what's just been going on, why Jesus is where he is, and and setting the scene. So, so my first significant moment is the walk. Okay, so um, we know the background. The stuff that's gone on before is Jesus has been with Nicodemus. I don't know whether you remember, but he has this whole conversation with Nicodemus, the Pharisee. He, um, Nicodemus really, really wants to know how he can. Um, get close to God and, ha- and have that experience with God. And, and Jesus says, you have to be baptised in water and the Spirit. So we've already got this kind of idea of Spirit that Jesus is talking about. He then and the disciples go off, they're baptising people. Um, there's a little bit of a ruckus starting to bubble up where um, there's this worry about the disciples and Jesus who are baptising more people than John. Um, Jesus decides at this point it is time to kind of move on. It's the middle of the day, it's really, really hot, it's noon, it's not the time of day that you want to be out and about in in a kind of desert um, place. Um, And he he's just preached that classic, you know, it's John 3.16, for God so loved the world. This is big big things have been been taking place. So Jesus goes off, he um, is looking for a drink, he's really thirsty. Um, and we, we know that the disciples have gone into town to buy food. He's, he's come to what we know as Jacob's well. Now, I don't know whether it was f- the physical well that Jacob would have built, but it was certainly part of the land and the history of Jacob and his family. So this place has got a lot of significance. 
Um, just to say in this significant moment and a quick reminder that Jesus was fully human. So he knew what it was like to be hot and tired and weary and thirsty. He knew that. And just a reminder for us that he knows our weariness. He knows what it feels like to be tired and weary. He needed to have a rest point. Um, his body has the, had the same limitations as, as our bodies have. He was, he was um, uh, also in a weak place that we get into. Um, also noon at the well, it's a pretty inconvenient time of day, but even Jesus at that place at that time made himself accessible. And it is never, ever inconvenient to go to our, our friend Jesus or our Heavenly Father. So that's the walk. Second significant moment is this well, which I've just mentioned. And the well um, also can represent biblically uh, God's gift, his provision. Um, it represents a healthy community. It's often, if you look back over the Old Testament, it's often a place where some kind of betrothal takes place. A precious moment between a man and a woman. Um, you know, this was the time of day where women would go, well, not for this particular point, but the women in the morning would go down to the well. Um, the men would know that that's when the women would be at the well. And there was often a moment, a meeting of men and women, and they could see each other there. But this particular well um, is not a little bucket on a string you know, the pictures that we've got in fairy tale books. You know, these wells were big wells. They were there for feeding everybody in the community. So they, they had to be big. They had to be significant. Um, and the beginning of a significant relationship. I just think this is a beautiful picture of Jesus as the bridegroom and the Samaritan woman representing the church. She doesn't know that. This is not part of her story yet. But there's just this picture of intimacy between two people and a promise um, where things are going to be restored. So my third um, significant moment, obviously, is the the Samaritan woman. Um, This is the longest conversation that Jesus has with a woman in in the New Testament as as we're reading it. She was female. She was a Samaritan she was an outcast. She was not with anybody else. She was not seen with anyone. As we know, we don't know exactly what her sin was, whether it was something that she chose or whether this was just awful circumstance for her where she had to repeatedly marry or be with different men. Maybe she'd been passed around. We don't know what her background is, but she wasn't in a good place. And she needed to come to the well, perhaps at a time of day where she wouldn't be able to see anybody else. She was the last, the least. She was the sinner. Um, She was the woman without any dignity. And yet Jesus sat with her at the well and spent that time with her. Um, The Samaritans would have been kind of seen a little bit like the pagans. Um, They kind of had a few relatively fixed ideas and knew some of the stuff that the Jews um, knew, but actually they were seen as more pagan. Um, but Jesus spoke to her from a place where she was. He understood. Um, there's a picture of Jesus 
talking to this woman of his grace, just right there at that very moment. He's doing something totally radical. He's talking to a woman, which he shouldn't be doing. He's talking to a Samaritan woman, which he definitely shouldn't be doing. And he's doing it at an inconvenient time of day. In the blazing heat, he's tired. He's, he is made himself totally accessible to this woman. Um, my fourth uh, significant moment is the word. Jesus speaks directly into her life. His word is totally connected in with what's going on in her life. He, he speaks all of the words that come out of his mouth. Um, he knows her. He knows what's on her heart. He knows her brokenness. He knows what's her thoughts, her history. He knows um, everything that's not gone right in her life. He knows those things. And he speaks to, straight to those places. It's a picture of the well. There's a weariness. I mean, just that scene of just sitting by the well. You can feel the, the weariness, maybe of her life. Maybe what it's like to have to come out and be hidden from society. Jesus comes straight to her and speaks directly to her heart. She's really touched by that. She's so amazed by what he says about her that he, she says, you're a prophet. She can see that he has some, a quality about him. Um, my final um, significant point is the way. This particular moment, Jesus is talking about a new way to do things, a new order. Um, He talks about worshipping God in spirit and in truth. And he talks about it very directly. Um, It's not optional. He says that we must worship in spirit and truth. Ezekiel talks about this. Um, I can find it. Um, in Ezekiel eleven nineteen, he says, and this is sort of foretelling what's going to happen. I will give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. I will remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. And he's talking, it's starting to build a picture of what it's going to be like when Jesus comes and uh, changes the course of history. Up until that point, worship is completely law-bound. Okay, you, you have to um, abide by a particular set of rules, and no one is able to go into the Holy of Holies in the temple. They're not allowed to go anywhere near that unless they are the special priest and once a year, and only under very, very specific circumstances. Here, Jesus is talking about worshipping in spirit and truth. This is, this is totally radical. This is, this is something that hasn't happened before. Um, and it's the, the point where I kind of want to linger for a little bit for this congregation. You know, worship, what is worship? Is it singing a load of songs? Singing some biblical songs? So we're singing out truth. What does Jesus mean when he talks about worship? Actually, the word worship is worth-ship. It's what we give worth to. It's very interesting, isn't it, when you're maybe at a football match or you're 
at a concert and your you know most favourite musician walks on stage, and people go absolutely nuts, shouting and you know, how often do you see that happening in church? It's our worship. Um, it's about our head, but it's about our heart. Um, here is. Um, a little description that I found about worship um, from uh, someone called Piper. Um, worship must be vital and real in the heart. And worship must rest on a true perception of God. There must be spirit and there must be truth. Truth without emotion produces dead orthodoxy and a church full of artificial admirers. On the other hand, emotion without truth produces empty frenzy and cultivates shallow people who refuse the discipline of rigorous thought. But true worship comes from people who are deeply emotional and who love deep and sound doctrine. Strong affections for God rooted in truth are the bone and marrow of biblical worship. I really like that, bone and marrow. It's about being disciplined, knowing the word, really knowing the word, but adoring God, learning to do those two things, holding two things together. The Greek word that is used in in this um, way for worship implies an attitude of reverence, um, and, and it's physical as well. There's gestures such as kissing hands or kneeling. It's, a, it's not just a singing of a song. It's our whole self. It's really interesting when we think about Mark 14 and the, and the, the woman who comes and breaks the alabaster jar over Jesus and, and the response of the, those people around Jesus at that moment who just think that it's over the top and Jesus was so blessed by that act. This woman gave everything for him. She had, that was it, that was all she had, and she chose to give everything to him. I was thinking about worship, and I was thinking about it in the context of relationships. Worship is about loving God and allowing God to love us. I think that's my really, really simple way of seeing it. And I was thinking, you know, if you're in a relationship, if you're, you're in a marriage, or you're just with someone, you invest in that person and you set out very specific times to love that person. You know, there's every day loving somebody and you just get on with it and you're generally nice throughout the day if you can. But there are other moments where you will sit with that person eye to eye, you will tell them that you love them. And you will wait to have a response back. You will go out for a meal or you will buy flowers or whatever, whatever your love languages are. But there, there is a specific moment for that intimacy where you can build on your relationship. If you don't do that, if you don't invest in that at all, it's very easy for our love to grow cold. And it's, it's like that in our worship. We have to invest. We have to have those dates with God where we are intimate, where we are looking to him and allowing him to gaze at us there's a transaction that takes place where our spirit meets his spirit 
And I've got no English words that can describe what happens during that heavenly transaction, but we're left changed. Our hearts are softer. Our minds are renewed. We know the love of God. There's something about having that special time set aside. It's not very done, is it, in English culture? to be all out for someone even if it's someone you really really love it's it's uh it's always going to be harder for english folk because we're we're so victorian i think in our in our emotions and we sort of hold everything back but god loves our sacrifice of worship and a sacrifice is something that is uncomfortable otherwise it's not a sacrifice is it it's just something easy and we just stand there But he loves our sacrifice of worship. He loves it when we don't want to worship and we choose to worship. He loves it when we're in a noisy space and the kids are making loads of noise and we can't really focus, but we choose to worship anyway. He loves it when they're playing the worst song in the world that you hate and you choose to worship God anyway because it's a sacrificial. It's doing, it's laying yourself, your will down and allowing God to come and meet with you anyway. An expectant heart in worship. We should expect to meet with God when we worship. And God comes and meets with us anyhow he likes. You know, sometimes it's the quiet whisper in the ear, a little reminder, a Bible passage that comes to mind. Sometimes it's a member of the congregation who comes up and just says exactly the right thing at the right time. Sometimes it's waves of presence of God and, and, you know, tangibly people can feel God. However God's going to do that, he wants you to sacrifice your will before him and allow him to come and meet with you. Going back to the bride and bridegroom, which is kind of where I want to land. Somebody said to me, what is the thing that drives me most about being part of a church is about the bride becoming all that she's meant to be. I've been a Christian since 92, and it, that has just been on my heart all that time. That the bride knowing the church, knowing who she is and what she is called to be doing. Um, and I think there's something about worship when we come together in corporately and we worship together. There's some kind of transaction that takes place where we get a better understanding of who we are as the bride and what we're called to be doing. The most dangerous church is the one who truly knows who she is. I think it's worth bearing in mind one of the reasons why there's usually in in church families big problems with getting worship right there's often you know we've we've had stuff happening in churches where we've been in before big big things you know big arguments about style and you know but put all of that aside if we knew who we were were we were the 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 bride absolutely loved by god if we knew that, dot, 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 can you imagine how different we would be? 
So call to worship. We don't, God doesn't need our worship. He's God. But we need to worship God. We need to lay those things down. We need him to come and meet with us. Work on our hard hearts. Fill our, our minds with the truth. And the way that we can be ready is allow him to come and teach us who he is by laying ourselves down before him afresh. Does that make sense? So um, I've got a, a little psalm I wanted to finish with. Obviously David is the ultimate worshipper, but I chose Psalm 63 because this is a, this is a psalm that he is singing during a, a really awful time. So this is not about, where well, hey, my life is so fantastic, I'm just going to sing, Jesus is brilliant, yeah! It's, this is the worst time for him, and yet he chooses to worship. So this is Psalm 63. You, God, are my God, earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you, my whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. I've seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift my hands. I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods, with singing lips, my mouth will praise you. And on my bed I remember you, I think of you through the watches of the night, because you are my help. I sing in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. Those who want to kill me will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the swords and become food for the jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by God will glory in him, while the mouths of lies will be silenced.